can understand what that little boy says at the end. He says, pickles for Christmas. So that's what you get all your kids this year. They're going to be super excited. Listen, we've been talking about Christmas for a few weeks now. Uh, we've been working our way through what it means to unwrap Christmas, the meaning, the necessity of Christmas, what the deeper meaning behind all that is. And now we are officially on to uh, and into our Christmas season. We all hopefully all survived uh, Thanksgiving. Uh, we, uh, we were gone in, uh, in Benton for the majority of the week, and Brody caught a little bit of a cough. That's why he and Jessica are not here this morning. And we, Jess and I went out Black Friday shopping. That's always a great experience if you've never done it. I don't recommend it. Uh, we've done this every year. This is something Jess and I did back when we first got married. Uh, and we've done it every year since. It's a lot of fun, actually. I, I really like to do it, uh, just to be out in the, in the hustle of it all. But here's what I noticed. This, we went to uh, Walmart, uh, which is, the I believe, at the threshold of hell itself on Black Friday. And we were, we were walking through, and there's, there's, the problem with Walmart is, you know, these other stores, they close, right? And so everybody's just kind of lined up outside the store. And when you open the doors, everybody just kind of goes in. But Walmart's open all the time. And so you can just go into Walmart, but the sale, quote unquote, doesn't start till a specific time. And so we get in there and these lines are just, there's, they have balloons tied to the end of the aisle. And if you want whatever's at the end of that line, then you get in that aisle and go. So Jess and I, we're standing in this food aisle in the, in the, in the grocery department of Walmart for an hour and 15 minutes. And like, I'm looking at her going, our kids better love us, right? And she's like, I'm pretty sure they don't. And so we, uh, we kind of had our moment of, is it worth it? But it was. And so we stayed in that line. And, uh, and what was so crazy is that we're like on this food over this aisle with like baby food and, uh, and, and, and paper towels and, and toilet paper and all that kind of stuff. And, and like I look up and this, this guy is legit grocery shopping. On Black Friday, he walks down the aisle and it's like, I can't get what I need. And I'm like, are you crazy? Like my first thought is just go home, man. It's not worth it. Find a Kroger, find some, go to the gas station, buy your toilet paper there. Don't come to Walmart on Black Friday. But we had a blast. We got to do everything that we wanted to do and we got what we stood in line for. I guess that makes it all worth it. And so I'm glad you guys are back. I'm glad we're uh, all here and we all survived and nobody got in a fight or nobody got arrested to, to get your, your washcloths for 50 cents. Okay. And so here's what we're going to do. Uh, this morning, we're going to dive into um, a, a little bit part of the narrative story that we told last week when we started talking about uh, Malachi and the reason why Christmas had to come. If you missed those series, uh, I invite you to go back online and watch that or maybe even go to the podcast on iTunes and, and listen to it because those are really going to set us up for the rest of this month and the things that we're going to talk about and how we're going to get into those. Now, what we're going to do today is we're going to move from our Old Testament uh, prophet Malachi into the New Testament story of Christmas. And, and to do that, we've got to work our way through uh, what's called the intertestamental period. That's a really fancy word to say, the time between the last prophet, Malachi, and uh, the New Testament writers in, uh, in Jesus' time. Now, that time period is about 400 years. That's a pretty big chunk of time. And, and so what we need to know and how that all plays out is that Israel is is kind of uh, doing their thing, right? We've kind of got the prophets. They've they've all stopped, and there's silence essentially from God. Uh, and about a hundred years past Malachi, Alexander the Great, you guys who know history know that uh, came. Uh, he was born and, and ruled, and then died uh, within about an eighty year time frame. I think he started ruling when he was about twenty years old. And then uh, and then Israel is is kind of situated. 
between what's called the Ptolemaic Empire, which is in Egypt, which is south of them, and the Seleucid Empire, which is north of them, and kind of Syria, okay? And so Israel was kind of being their own independent country until the Seleucid Emperor said, no more, I'm going to take over you guys. And he came down and basically banned all Jewish things, okay? He banned uh, sacrifice, he banned... uh, he banned uh, circumcision. Uh, he banned uh, all the rituals and the things that they would do, all the festivals. He got rid of all those. He even burned a lot of the copies of the Torah uh, so that they could not practice their religion. Okay? Um, after uh, that had been going on for a while, there was a family in, uh, in Israel that rose up and said, we're not going to take this in. We're saying the uh, old song, we're not going to take it, right? And they, they stood us where that came from. And then, that's uh, not. And then uh, their, their family was called the Maccabees, okay? And so the Maccabean revolt is just because their family kind of started it. And they came up uh, and said, we're not going to live like this anymore. We're going to do what we're going to do. And they really kicked out the emperor and all his people and said, no, we're going to still be the people that we're going to be. And they started reinstituting these practices. This is the same group of guys when they came back and, uh, and reinstituted all the Jewish things. They uh, rededicated the temple. And in that moment, they lit the menorah that only had enough oil to burn for one night, but burned for eight nights, hence Hanukkah. Okay, so these are the guys who did all of that. And that all happened, uh, and they were kind of back on track until about 63 AD, uh, about 60, 70 years before Jesus shows up, and, uh, and the Roman Empire comes in, and we all know that the Romans kind of take over everything. And, uh, and they, uh, they came in and, and set up uh, Israel as a client kingdom of Rome. And so they came in and took over. We all know that Herod the Great was then instituted as the client king in Judea and, and is what we know as Israel. And, uh, and so when Jesus is born, we read that uh, story in Luke chapter 2, talking about Herod was the king or whatever. That's, that's this people because of what the Romans did in 63 AD. So we've, we've kind of worked our way through in a very quick and not a very organized manner of those 400 years. There's a lot of other things that happened we could talk about, but those are the kind of the highlights. And the reason why I told you that is so that you understand what the Jews have gone through since, uh, since Malachi and the Old Testament and the prophets of, of Old Testament have been silenced. There was not a like what we would think of a genocide. You know, it wasn't a genocide like uh, we go back to what Hitler was trying to do through World War II. Okay? It wasn't a, 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 an eradication of a people group, but it was more of a spiritual genocide. The Seleucids tried to, tried to just wipe out all things religious, all religious practices of the Hebrews, trying to just kind of, well, if we'll just silence this, if we'll just outlaw this, if we'll just burn all the copies, then they can't worship their God. And so the Jews have, have really endured all of this and kind of worked their way through all of this history until the one thing that they've been waiting for actually happens and actually shows up. Before we get to into that, which we'll do next week, we have to talk about the messenger that has been promised through Malachi and through Isaiah and through all these different other prophets. And we know him as John the Baptist. And so if you've got your Bible, let's turn to, uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 1. Um, we, I, I, I wanted to give you a little bit of that breakdown because we have to remember that, that Jesus came right at the right time. Okay, so let's, let's, let me give you just a little bit more before we get into that because I think this is important to get our context. Okay, uh, when, the, when the Romans took over 
and they kind of started ruling for the very first time since the Tower of Babel. Y'all remember that way back Old Testament? Pretty much all of the known world spoke a common language. Now, everybody still had their own dialect, but almost everybody began to speak Greek because that was the, that was the language of the Romans. Okay? Because of the Romans and their rule, the, the roads and everything that they built and, and the travel was a lot easier, made things a lot easier and a little bit easier to navigate. And because of what's called the Pax Romana, which is the Roman peace, 180 years worth of peace... Because they were so, everybody was so afraid of them. They were so feared by their enemies. Jesus shows up, and Galatians says, in the fullness of time, which means just at the right time. And so when Jesus comes, and what we know of, of you know, the turn of that century from, a, from BC to AD, right? We, we kind of go back, post date that. Um, when he comes, he comes at the perfect time. And when he comes, he's got to have everything that's been prophesied about him to come as well, which is the messenger, which is the reason why we're talking about John. So Luke chapter 1, verse 5, jumps into our story and says this, In the time of Herod, king of Judea, we just set him up, right? There was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. So these two are uh, of, of Levite right, background. They're all both descended of them. Uh, both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. You should circle that word in your Bible. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well along in Years. Now, verse 8 tells us that Zechariah was serving at the temple, okay? And about this time, there's, uh, there's roughly about 18,000 priests that are active in, uh, in what we would know as, as Israel now. Uh, those 18,000 priests are divided into 24 groups, okay? Each one of those groups serve a two-week stint at the temple. And so no matter where you lived... For two weeks out of the year, you came and served at the temple, and then you went back to where you live. And so Zechariah is now in his two-week service to the temple. And of the 18,000 priests, he gets drawn by lot to burn incense in the temple. Now, this is probably the only time in his life that he's ever going to get to do this. This is a big deal. Okay. And so he's there, he's serving, he's going to burn incense. Is what the, the altar of incense is inside the temple and it's, it's outside of the Holy of Holies. And what they would do is they'd come and they would light uh, incense in there and they would just stay and pray. Uh, and the Bible talks about how incense is like prayers to God. It's the smell of prayers to God. And so they would light the incense and they would stay and they would pray for the nation. And so Zechariah gets to do that. And so he lights it, he begins to pray. And then verse 11, it says... Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. I love how the Bible says this. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. He was scared to death. Okay, that's what it should say. But the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. 
many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and to the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That is an incredible statement. Zechariah doing something he's never done before, probably never going to ever do again, lights the incense and the altar of incense, and then an angel appears out of nowhere and says, your prayers have been heard. This is the moment that we all live for, right? When we are desperate and we are at the end of our rope, we really don't know what else to do, and we're praying, we're asking God to intervene, we're asking for something to happen and for a voice to be heard, and Zachariah gets to experience this, not only just audibly, but, but tangibly. There's an angel there, and he says, your prayers have been heard. And the very first thing that we think is, you know, what's he praying? Most people would say he's praying for a son because the very next thing is your prayers have been heard, your wife, well, Elizabeth, will have a son. But I believe that's not the prayer he was praying. The Bible says, we just read that, that they were a little bit older now. And they kind of think that this time is kind of past. We... We just got through talking about that in our prayer series, right? Where you want something and you pray for something and you beg God for things and it just doesn't seem to happen. And I think at this point in Zechariah's life, he's just kind of come to the understanding that he's not going to get that prayer answered. He's, he's just kind of okay with that. Not totally great with that, but he's, he's understanding. You know, in this moment, he's just like, you know what? I'm probably not going to have a child. So what prayer is he praying? I think Zechariah is asking for the Messiah to come. I think that's the prayer that he's praying at the altar. I think he's been saying the same thing that the prophets back since Malachi were saying 400 years ago, send us the Messiah. We are waiting, expectantly waiting for him to show up. And the angel comes and says, listen, I'm going to give you what you're asking for. And oh, by the way, you're going to have a son and you're going to name him John. And, and, and we even may be righteous like Zechariah and Elizabeth. And we may be kind of self-righteous in our mind. But we would never expect this answer to the prayer to happen. I'm sure that Zechariah is going, listen, I wasn't even asking for that. I was just asking for the Messiah. But here's our lesson. We've got four lessons we're going to learn today. Lesson number one is this. It may not be the right time for what you're wanting. God may not be saying no, but he may be saying not yet. Listen, a lot of us come to him with wants and desires and needs and all these things, and we're asking, and we're asking, and we're asking, and we feel like maybe he's saying no, but he may really be saying not yet. A prayer that Zechariah had prayed for most likely years went unanswered. And then I believe he begins to pray for the Messiah to come because he thinks that answer is just never going to come. So I'm going to change my prayer and I'm going to start praying for the Messiah. That's what you do at the altar of incense. You pray that God would show himself and make himself presence and make himself known. And he's praying for God to come. And they says, God says, okay, I'm going, to, I'm going to give you what you're asking for. And oh yeah, by the way, this other thing's going to happen too. Jesus had to have John to fulfill all the Old Testament prophecy. And, and maybe 
Just maybe your moment needs a miracle with it. Maybe what you're asking God for, he's got a plan that he's going to work out in a way that you could never even imagine possible. John, being like most of us, I believe, does exactly what all of us would do. We go, oh, gosh, God, that is incredible. Thank you so much. I cannot believe you're going to bless me with a son. I cannot wait to tell everybody about what you just said, right? Is that what he does? No, keep reading. This is what he says. Verse 18, Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? <laughs> right? Number one, I'm an old man, and this is the politically correct way to say this, and my wife is well along in years, right? He didn't want to say, she's an old lady too, right? He didn't want to say that. He said, I'm an old man and my wife, well, she's well along in years as well. How can this happen? That would be the exact same response that we would have, right? When we've, we've been praying for something and praying and just believe that that prayer is not going to be answered, then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, God says, hey, I'm going to give you what you prayed for a long, long time ago. You're going, yeah, right. Ah, I don't think that can. God, this really can't happen. This doesn't make sense. And here's what the angel said, verse 19. The angel answered, I am Gabriel. Like He is asserting himself. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. Listen, if you don't get anything out of this morning, get this, because this here's lesson number two. Sometimes God needs us to be quiet so we don't miss a miracle. Sometimes he needs us to be quiet so that we don't miss a miracle. Because what happens whenever things kind of come at us from a direction that we're not expecting, maybe from a prayer that we're not really ready for God to answer, even though we've been praying it for a long time, what we do, we start to make excuses. Well, God, I don't think that you can do that because of this and this and this and this and this. God, I don't know if I'm ready for all that because I'm scared and I, I just don't know if I can handle this. And, and remember all the excuses that Moses gave and all the excuses other people gave in through the Old Testament and the New Testament. I can't be this because of my past. I can't give up this because just to follow you, I, I don't know that I can handle this. And I believe sometimes God just wants us to be quiet so we don't miss what he's trying to do in our life. The only lesson, the biggest lesson that we can learn from this this morning is sometimes when God speaks, we need hush and just listen. Zechariah began to make excuses. Zechariah began to kind of work through the laundry list of this doesn't make sense, right? I, I don't know how this, we do this. My past was not going to let this happen. We, that's our biggest excuse. Every one of us in this room will say, well, my past, well, my past. And God says, I'm going to use your past. Well, what about this? What about my inability? What about my, my shyness? Or what about my, you know, my stuttering or my stammer? What, about, what if I don't know what to say or if I don't know what to do? And God says, quit making excuses. Are you going to miss the miracle that I'm trying to perform here? The angel silenced John, or Zechariah. Literally, cannot speak anymore. Sometimes I believe we just need to be quiet and trust and watch God do something that we could never have imagined. Now, remember what Zechariah was doing in this moment. He was burning incense at the altar, and he has this angel show up, and, it, and, and 
and the people who are outside are kind of getting worried about him. They're going, what's going on? It's taking a long time. He's not in the Holy of Holies, so surely God's not that mad at him. What's, what's kind of taking so long? And so finally Zechariah exits the temple, and, and he's not able to speak. And so interestingly, the Bible doesn't say that he tried to explain to the other priests what happened. It just says that they all knew that he had some sort of vision or some sort of revelation, right? And, uh, and so he, he, I'm, I'm assuming somehow he tried to communicate that to them, but it doesn't say that he did. But he goes home. And, and, and everything that the angel says happens. Elizabeth gets pregnant. And the Bible says that she stays in seclusion for five months. Uh, there's a little speculation about why she would do that. I think uh, the easiest answer to that is, is, listen, she was past her childbearing age, and she just wanted to make sure everything was okay, so she's in seclusion for five months. Now, we know that during those five months, Gabriel makes another birth announcement, right? We're going to talk about this probably next week, where Gabriel shows up to Mary and Joseph individually, right, and says, you guys are going to be parents of the Messiah, of the Christ, of the one that we've all been waiting for. And, uh, and pregnant Mary uh, finally comes and makes a visit to pregnant Elizabeth, right, in this moment. And the Bible says that she stays with her for about three months. Uh, this is most likely the first three months of Mary's pregnancy and the last three months of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Uh, this is when, when she comes up. Uh, the Bible talks about how the, the, the baby in Elizabeth's womb leapt, right? Y'all remember that in Scripture? And, uh, and this is where Elizabeth delivers the blessed are you among women uh, for what you are doing speech that she gives to uh, Mary. And in verse 57, uh, the Bible says that it's time for Elizabeth to have her baby, and she does so. And on the eighth day, uh, which is their, their, um, their kind of practice and ritual. They go to circumcise the baby and name the baby. And so the first seven days, the baby doesn't officially have a name in Jewish culture. On the eighth day is the naming day, and uh, they are going to name him John. Most people believe that uh, that doesn't make any sense, right? You don't have anybody in your family named John. Uh, Elizabeth does not name the baby that. <clears throat> and she insists, no, his name is John, which tells us that when Zechariah came back, he explained the best he could to uh, Elizabeth what all had happened and why they were going to name the baby John. The Bible says that he wrote down on a tablet, uh, most likely a wax tablet, his name is John, and they named him John. And as soon as he did that, verse 64, immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak, praising God. Now, I wonder... How many of us in this moment would praise be the first thing that happened? When, when all, after nine months of not being able to speak, it doesn't say what Elizabeth did. I don't know if Elizabeth went, oh gosh, now i got to listen to him again. Or she went, yes, finally he can speak. But after nine months of not being able to talk, would the very first thing out of your mouth be a, 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 an utterance of praise or an utterance of frustration. A lot of people believe that uh, not only was he mute, but he was also struck in death. And so there's this kind of, kind of a double whammy even adding to the frustration of what it could have been. It hit me. I think that for a lot of us, we'd be like, finally, oh, I haven't been able to talk for nine months and this has been going on. Let me tell you about my experience. But it says that he began to speak praising God. 
Why would he do such a thing? I believe wholeheartedly that Zechariah knew what the angel told him. He knew that as soon as he couldn't speak anymore, everything that the angel said was going to come true. He knew that Elizabeth was going to get pregnant. He knew that they would have a son. He knew that they would name him John. He knew that as soon as he did, that he would be able to speak again. And if he knew all of that was going to happen, then the rest of what the angel said was going to happen as well. He knew that the Messiah was coming. That was the thing that he was praying for. Your prayers have been answered and you're going to have a son. And he's going to lead all these people back to uh, the Lord. He's going to be the one to make straight the path for the Lord. And so Zechariah, of all people, knew, listen, if I can't speak for nine months, then everything else that this angel said is going to happen too. He knew that the Messiah was coming. He came out of a time and a season of God proving himself over and over and over again. And, And Zechariah, in response to all that, is expecting God to keep his word on all the rest of it. The Messiah was coming. He, of all people, had no reason to doubt that. He, of all people, had no reason to question that. And church, I believe, I believe that when we come out of a season of God proving himself over and over and over again, when we experience some sort of healing, right? When, when doctors are scratching their head going, we don't know how this happened, but you're, you're better now. And, and it doesn't make any sense to us. When we experience some sort of forgiveness, when we've hurt the ones that we love the most and they choose to love us anyway, when we experience some sort of restoration where relationships are set back right, and when we experience grace that has been extended to us, And that God continues to love us even at our most unlovable. All we can do is praise. It's exactly what Zechariah was doing. The only thing that he had inside him that was building up for months and months and months was praise. But this praise cannot be short-lived. See, this is where it hits us kind of in the mouth. We've had, a lot of us has experienced this incredible miracle. We've, we've experienced God move in a way that we never could have imagined. And we are full of praise and full of gratitude and full of faith. And six months later, we're nowhere to be found. We experience healing We experience God move in our family. We see salvation work itself out through people that we've been praying for for a long time. We experience grace personally in our own life. And we are full of praise and we're full of praise and we're full of praise. And it just kind of dwindles out. And then six to eight months later, just life is normal. This kind of praise cannot be short-lived. Our miracle cannot become mundane. Our amazement cannot move into apathy. Because the reality that God would actually move on your behalf has to be has to generate something inside of you that's eternally grateful, that's eternally in wonder, that's eternally in amazement. I'm going to say this, and this one's going to hurt a little bit. Lesson number three. One miracle is enough. See, we're so programmed to think that we've got to be looking for the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. That we get so numb to what God has already done 
that in a moment where God has worked a miracle, we go, oh, this is incredible. They were so grateful for this. We cannot believe this. And then maybe a year later, we just, we're kind of over it. Yeah, it was kind of a neat thing. Oh, it was great. God did this for me. And now we're looking for him to do something else. And we're not satisfied with what he's done in our past. We're always looking for him to bless us in some other way or to move on our behalf in some other way. And can I just say this? One miracle is enough. One miracle is enough for us to be eternally grateful. One miracle is enough for us to be eternally thankful. One miracle is enough for you to have an eternal submission to him. One miracle is enough. And you go, God, well, Matt, I've never really experienced this miracle. I've never experienced God really move on my behalf. I've, I've just kind of been living life. He's never really worked for me. And I'm going to say this to you, and it's going to be really hard. Yes, you have. John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That is a miracle that you get to experience every day. We have seen the glory, the glory of the one and only, full of grace, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That miracle in itself, the miracle of Christmas, you get to experience. And that miracle is enough. If God never works on your behalf again, if God never works out something, if he never answers another prayer, guess what? That miracle is enough for us to be eternally grateful to him. And we, we, just, we, we get so discontent. We get so wrapped up in what's next that we lose sight of the miracle of the very first Christmas that God himself would somehow and some reason come to earth to us to provide a way of salvation and forgiveness of our sin. And that miracle is enough. Everything on top of that is icing on the cake, right? It's better than... And listen, we talk about that in real... It's just kind of a tongue-in-cheek thing, but icing on a cake is the best part, right? And so it's the, everything else is the best. We have our one miracle, and that's all we really need. This celebration of Christmas and our response to it cannot be short-lived. Zechariah finishes this story with this prophetic song of praise, which is incredible. Uh, we don't have time to go through it. This is Luke chapter 1, verse 68 through 79. You can read that later this week. And then in verse 80, it says that the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the desert until he publicly appeared to Israel. This is John. We know John uh, lived in the desert. This is part of prophecy. This is part of what he was supposed to do. He comes on the scene with wild hair, right? Eating bugs and honey and uh, having camel's hair vests and uh, leather belts around his waist. And everybody kind of just labels him as this really odd guy and this really weird thing. But we don't hear anything else about Zechariah and Elizabeth in scripture at all. The end of Zechariah's prophetic song of praise. That's the end of his story in Scripture. We don't hear anything else from him. And we don't hear anything about John for about 30 years. And then we pick up what we read two weeks ago in Mark chapter 1. It says this. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out confessing their sins and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Remember that. We're going to talk about that in just a second. Verse 7. This was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I. The thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy 
Spirit. Now listen, if you grew up in church, you know the message of John the Baptist. You know how he prepared the way, how he eventually baptized Jesus, right? And in that moment, heaven opened up and the voice of God uh, spoke out and the Spirit of God descended in the form of a dove, right? We all know that moment. That's the reason why we baptize people today is because Jesus was baptized and God put his stamp of approval publicly on him. And he says, this is my son whom I love and who I am, with whom I am well pleased. Right? We know that passage of scripture. And this is a physical and audible blessing on Jesus. But, but, but know this. Did you catch what John said? After me will come someone more powerful than I. John knew his role in the whole story of Jesus. He knew what he was supposed to do. If you got your Bible, flip over to John chapter 1 because this is really great. I got it on the screen if you don't have it. But this really kind of puts some things in perspective to us because I think it gives us another lesson that we're going to see at the back side of this. John chapter 1, verse 19. You guys know that the, the Gospels tell the story uh, of Jesus and all the things that surround Jesus from different perspectives. And uh, the baptism of Jesus in all four Gospels. Uh, um, and so this, this kind of lead up to that is in a couple of different ones, but John has a pretty neat perspective on this. It says this. Now, this was John's testimony. This is John the Baptist's testimony. When the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was, he did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. Right? This is a great thing that we should all say on a very normal basis. I am not the Christ. I am not the one that is ruling everything. I'm not the one in charge. I'm not the boss. I am not God. I am not the Christ. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you a prophet? He said, no. And finally they said, well, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. Who do you say you are? And John replied in the words of Isaiah, the prophet, I am the voice of the one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. This is why the, the passages around uh, John is so in, incredible. Because he, here's the deal. John had influence. John had disciples. There were men who were following John. John had a little bit of notoriety. There was crowds gathering around him. And John could have let all that begin to sway who he thought he was. But see, John knew that it wasn't about him. He over and over and over again said, this is not about me. It's not, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the one you're waiting for. And church, if for one second, we ever believe that our lives and our being and our time and our purpose and our, our, our whole reason for being on earth is about us, then we've never truly unwrapped Christmas. We've never truly looked at the reason why we are who we are. John freely answered, I am not the Christ. It's not me. It's not even about me. I'm just here to get everybody ready for him. And isn't that our job now? Isn't our responsibility now to get people ready to encounter Christ? That we can, we can tell them the story of what Jesus has done and how he came and how he eventually died and how he was risen and how he now rules from the right hand of God in heaven. Isn't that our responsibility to make ready the people to hear the Christ and to encounter and to meet and to be changed by Jesus? 
John says, listen, it's not about me. I'm just, I'm just like a, I'm just like, I'm just the announcer. I'm just the people who, I'm just the guy who's going to get ready, get you guys ready so that the, the real guy can actually come. And I believe that our job as Christ followers is the same as John's job, that we are to make ready the people for the Messiah. That we are to tell and we are supposed to experience and supposed to, to let, this, let this story of salvation and the story of redemption that lives within us be shared so that other people can encounter him and be ready when he comes back. That's the whole point of everything that we do. Number four, lesson number four is it's not about us. It's not about us. It's all about him. We aren't the ones uh, who are the center of the story. We aren't the ones who are the star of the show. We should be anxiously awaiting his return, just like the Jews were anxiously awaiting his first arrival. But we're not. We're living like we're the center of the show, like it's more about us than it is about him, and we've missed the point of Christmas. Here's my last thought, and I'm, I'm done. The Bible said that people from all over came to John, confessing their sins being baptized in the Jordan River. Now, why is, what's so significant about the Jordan River? This is great. About 1,500 years earlier, somebody else crossed that Jordan River, stood in it, and then eventually crossed it. Joshua chapter 1. This is so great. Verse 10, so Joshua ordered the officers of the people, go through the camp and tell the people, get your supplies ready three days from now. Uh, you will cross the Jordan here to go on to take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you for your own. Now, you guys know this story, right? Uh, Moses leads the people out of Egypt. They come to the promised land from the south coming up, and everybody's too afraid to go in. And so because of that, they have to wander in the desert for 40 years. And they wander, really, which is east of what we know as Israel. Uh, they wander over in the desert for 40 years. Uh, and then they come back, moving westward, uh, and Moses dies. Moses isn't able to go in, but he appoints his right-hand man, Joshua. Joshua's going to lead the people across the Jordan River. That's what they have to cross to get back east into uh, Israel. Now, what's great about this is that every Jewish man, woman, and child knows this story. They, they absolutely, as much as we are familiar with it, they know it. Like they know it inside and out. Joshua was leading the Israelites out of captivity, out of wandering, out of an old life into what God had promised them, into this new, incredible life. Then, 1,500 years later, another man, Jesus. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of linguistics here because this is great. The New Testament is originally written in Greek, right? We know that. That was the language of the day. The Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, okay? Uh, because that was the language of the Jews. Jesus in English is English word for the Greek word Iesus, okay? So we're all learning Greek. We're going to learn one Hebrew word as well. Jesus is the English word for the Greek word Iesus, 
So when we translated the Greek New Testament into English, Jesus becomes Jesus. Okay? Now, what's great about this is this. Jesus is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Yeshua. So when, when the Greeks said, okay, we want to take the Hebrew Old Testament and we want to write it in our language, they wrote Yeshua for the Hebrew word. They wrote Jesus for the Hebrew word, Yeshua. Now, here's the last one. This is great. Yeshua is Hebrew for the English word, Joshua. And so when we take the original language of Hebrew and we translate that into English, Yeshua becomes Joshua, which is the same word that the Greeks made into Jesus, which we make into Jesus. The word Jesus is the New Testament word for the Old Testament word, Joshua. And so now we have this Joshua leading people out of a physical captivity. And now in the New Testament, we have this New Testament Jesus, which is the same word as Joshua leading us in, out of a spiritual captivity into this, into this new life that's been promised to us. When, when Jesus gets baptized in the Jordan River, this is so symbolic. This is so deep because everybody, every Jewish person there stands and goes, well, that guy's name is the same name as Joshua. And Joshua crossed the Jordan River and gave us a new life in this land. And now this guy named Jesus, who's got, really got the same name as Joshua, is giving us this new life in him. It's a spiritual rebirth. It's this brand new opportunity to live not as slaves and captives to sin, but as a new creation in him. The new has become tangible to us. Now, we're not moving into a new world or a new land. Now we're spiritually moving into a new opportunity, a new relationship with the creator because of this man standing in the Jordan. Listen, church. This reason is the reason why Jesus had to come. This, this whole point is that what John was preparing the people for was Christmas. What John was born to do is to get everybody ready for that man standing and getting baptized in the Jordan River. And all the symbolism around that and all the Jews that were there saw it and went, this is the guy. He's not leading us into the promised land. He's leading us into the promised relationship. And so my question to you this morning is this. What are you going to do with that man in the Jordan? What are you going to do with Jesus as he, as he has provided this new opportunity, as he's provided this new way of life, and that he's, he said, listen, I'm here and I'm going to change everything. We're going to talk about that next week. How, how his physical manifestation of his presence changed everything. And he shows up. He's born, and all the things that happen around the birth is all fulfillment of prophetic uh, voices of the Old Testament. And then he shows up on the scene 30 years later, and he says, I am the only way to have a right relationship with God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I've come so that you can have life and have life abundantly. See, these things that Jesus promised, these things that Jesus spoke are true and they are right and they are accurate and it all 
hinged on him coming here. Christmas allowed for us to have right relationship because he became a physical, tangible person. Now, what we know is this baby of Christmas grew, proved himself to be the son of God, and he died because we had to have a sacrifice for the sins that we committed. We had to have an eternal payment for the debt that we owed. And and because God is so fantastic, and because death cannot hold him, Jesus came back and said, because I have been resurrected, so you now have a promise of resurrection in your life. Listen, if Jesus didn't come back to life, we we would never get to either. It all starts with Christmas. It all culminates with the cross. And all this happened in the specific time, in a specific order, because John had to come first. He had to teach us some lessons along the way. And he's still, I believe, teaching us those lessons today. Listen, church, it's not about us. It's not about Emmanuel Baptist Church. It's not about all the great things that's happening within our church, within our walls, and even outside of our walls. It's about what Jesus is doing in and amongst us. And this Christmas, as we begin to unwrap the deeper meaning of all of this, we will focus on what matters most. And it's not us. It's not our story. It's about sometimes us being quiet and listening. It's about us recognizing that it's not about us. It's about us seeing the deeper meaning of Christmas. So my question to you this morning as we end, I'm going to ask you to stand. TJ's going to come. Dustin and I will be down front. The question that I have is what will you do with the man in the Jordan who was eventually baptized who lived and gave his life for you. That is the meaning of Christmas, the whole point of Christmas. John came to tell about it. Jesus came and lived it. Now it's up to us to accept it and to believe it. If you have questions about that, if you need to come and pray, altar, you're welcome to that. If you want to join our church, this is your opportunity. Church, some of us need to get Jesus out of the manger and make him real. Some of us need to understand that that God has a specific time and order in our life, and we need to trust Him with that. Whatever it is this morning, I ask you to do business with God. Let's hey, this is Matt Overall. I'm the pastor here at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Just want to say thanks so much for watching our services, whether through our television ministry or our online ministry. We appreciate you so much being a part of Emmanuel Baptist Church, and we'd love to have you come and join our worship service. Uh, Sunday morning service starts at 10.30. Our small groups start at 9.30. And we'd love to have you be a part of it. We've got a lot of different ministries that happen at Emmanuel, from our children and youth that's focused on Wednesday nights to our uh, women's Bible studies that happen throughout the week. We'd love to have you be a part of everything that's going on here at Emmanuel. Thanks for watching.